Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Ceremi. This is a bonus episode, Black Americans and Self-Defense. This is an ongoing story. However, today's episode can stand alone and discusses the topic of self-defense and relates to both my season one case of Destry McKinney and my season two case of Elisha Baxter. Destry McKinney and Elisha Baxter are both black Americans who had no prior convictions, who were brutally attacked and defended themselves, and were both subsequently convicted of murder. This episode is being recorded on April 11th of 2021 and the first two weeks of the Derek Chauvin murder trial for the killing of George Floyd have just finished. His defense will start next week, and we're definitely going to talk about that today. This podcast does include adult content, so please use caution. I want to discuss what happened to Army Medic Lieutenant Karen Nazario on December 5th of 2020 when he was pulled over by white police officers in Windsor, Virginia for driving without a tag, which was prominently displayed in his back window of the new SUV he bought. Lieutenant Nazario is black. Lieutenant Nazario was terrorized by these police officers. But before we can really talk about what happened on December 5th of 2020, just a few months ago, we have to go back to February 12th of 1946. World War II had ended five months earlier, and Isaac Woodard Jr., a decorated soldier, was going home on a bus. He had just been honorably discharged. He had earned several medals while fighting in the Pacific Theater in combat during the war. He had enlisted at the age of 23, and he was now 27. He was still wearing his army uniform. He had a verbal altercation of sorts with the bus driver, who took issue with him being a black man in uniform. He called over a South Carolina police officer at a stop, who then started beating Isaac Woodard. At some point during the altercation, while Isaac was on the ground being beaten with the billy club, He took the billy club from the officer. He did not start the fight. He did not fight back. He only acted in the most minimal of self-defense. He was then beaten so brutally by multiple police on the ride to the police station during his overnight jail stay, and they literally gouged his eyes out, permanently blinding him. This was a decorated war veteran who had the nerve of being black on a bus. The sheriff was eventually arrested and acquitted of any wrongdoing by an all-white jury. This legacy of not allowing black men to defend themselves dates back 
through our entire history through modern day. Let's go back to December 5th of 2020 when Lieutenant Nazario was pulled over in Windsor, Virginia. He slowly drove a mile to a well-lit gas station because he didn't want to pull over on the side of a dark road. I'm going to tell you that I've been told my entire life that that's what you should do if you're being pulled over because you never know for sure if it's even a legit police officer. And the last thing you want to do is pull over in the middle of nowhere where there's no witnesses. Lieutenant Nazario pulls over. He puts his hands out the window. All of this is on video. There's body cam footage. He's recording it on his cell phone. He has his hands out the window. He has two officers who have now trained their guns on him and they're telling him to put his hands out where they can see them but then they're telling him to get out well he can't get out without taking his seatbelt off which means he has to bring his hands down and if you know what happened to Philando Castile I wouldn't want to put my hands down either if you don't know Philando Castile was shot to death in front of his girlfriend and a child during a routine traffic stop after telling the officer that he had a gun in the car which he was which he legally owned and the officer said don't reach for it and he said I'm not reaching for it and then he was killed <music> Lieutenant Nazario said to be honest I'm afraid to get out and do you know what these police officers said you should be afraid Fortunately for Lieutenant Nazario, he was not killed. He was pepper sprayed repeatedly in the face while literally doing nothing. He was kicked and thrown on the ground and handcuffed. This is how we treat black Americans in the United States. This was December 5th of 2020. In order to explain what's happening in the United States today in terms of black Americans and self-defense, we have to go back through time. We have to go back to the beginning because you cannot look with a lens of 2021 and what we think our ideals are and what we think our country stands for and pick apart what's happening to black Americans. We have to go back. To 1619, when the first 20 or 30 Africans were captured and sold to the Jamestown colony. There's a podcast called 1619, and their entire first episode is dedicated to this history. I'm going to briefly touch on this in today's episode, but I highly recommend that you listen to 1619. It's fantastic. And the first episode gives a very thorough discussion of what I'm about to just breeze through. From 1619 until 1865, the economics of the United States and especially the South was almost entirely created by the Atlantic slave trade. This was institutional chattel slavery. Chattel is a term that comes up a lot when we start talking about slavery. And in case you don't know what it means, here is a definition by the Abolition Project. 
A chattel slave is an enslaved person who is owned forever and whose children and children's children are automatically enslaved. Chattel slaves are individuals treated as complete property to be bought and sold. Chattel slavery was supported and made legal by European governments and monarchs. This type of enslavement was practiced in European colonies from the 16th century onwards. From the time the first 20 enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown in 1619 until the Revolutionary War started in 1775, by then a full one-fifth of the population were black slaves. 20% of Americans were enslaved. There were 500,000 slaves when the Revolutionary War started. In 1865, when the Civil War ended, there were 4 million. During this period of institutional slavery, we had many laws called slave codes. From Britannica.com, it discusses the slave codes and how they all had common provisions. Quote, in all of them, the color line was firmly drawn, and any amount of African heritage established the race of a person as black, with little regard as to whether the person was slave or free. The status of the offspring followed that of the mother, so that the child of a free father and an enslaved mother was a slave. Slaves had few legal rights. In court, their testimony was inadmissible in any litigation involving whites. End quote. That would be the beginning of legally not allowing black Americans to defend themselves. Quote, they could make no contract, nor could they own property. Even if attacked, they could not strike a white person. There were numerous restrictions to enforce social control. Slaves could not be away from their owner's premises without permission. They could not assemble unless a white person was present. They could not own firearms. They could not be taught to read or write, nor could they transmit or possess inflammatory literature. They were not permitted to marry, end quote. Britannica goes on to talk about how the slave codes were enforced and the punishments such as whipping, branding, and imprisonment were commonly used. Enslaved persons, especially any that committed violence against whites, which of course included self-defense, were killed. Though they did mention that because slaves were valuable as labor, the practice of killing slaves who defended themselves was discouraged. Here's a Virginia slave code from October 1669. Quote, Whereas the only law in force for the punishment of refractory servants resisting their master, mistress, or overseer cannot be inflicted upon Negroes, nor the obstinacy of many of them be suppressed by other than violent means, be it enacted and declared by this grand assembly if any slave resists his master or other by his master's order correcting him, and by the extremity of the correction should chance to die, that his death shall not be accounted a felony. But the master or the other person appointed by the master to punish him be acquitted from molestation, since it cannot be presumed that premeditated malice, which alone makes murder a felony, should induce any man to destroy his own estate. End quote. After the Civil War, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, which abolished slavery, with one notable exception. The 13th Amendment states, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, 
except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The southern states took full advantage of that notable exception in the 13th Amendment, enacting uncountable laws, often called black codes, and Jim Crow laws in order to make it essentially illegal to be black. Vagrancy laws passed saying that it was illegal to not have a home. When you have 4 million freed slaves who now don't have homes, it's pretty easy to, to find a violation of that, and then you can use your exception to that 13th Amendment, where enslavement is legal if you've been convicted of a crime, and this was used in mass to reincarcerate and re-enslave huge portion of the population. Many of these laws were in effect until 1965. This is not ancient history. There are tens of millions of people currently living in the United States that can tell you about the experience of forced segregation, black codes, and Jim Crow laws. After the Civil War, Mississippi and South Carolina were the first states to pass black codes. These codes codified into law things like it was illegal to be unemployed. Mind you, these are black codes, so they only apply to black Americans. If you weren't employed, you could be forced to work. It was illegal to quit a job. So if you quit a job, you not only could be forced to work for free, you also forfeited all of the wages that you had already earned. It was illegal to be homeless. If you were homeless, you could be arrested, beaten, and forced to work for free. Does any of this sound familiar? They also had labor contract laws, which made it illegal for an employer to offer a black American higher wages than they were already being paid. They were literally codifying into law ways to continually enslave black Americans and keep them from earning wages or making more money. In order to finish our time travel to explain the current status of black Americans in self-defense to get from the slave codes to the black codes to the Jim Crow laws to modern-day policing, we have to talk about lynching. The Equal Justice Initiative has an educational paper on lynching, which I'm going to quote from. Quote, During the period between the Civil War and World War II, thousands of African Americans were lynched in the United States. Lynchings were violent and public acts of torture that traumatized black people throughout the country and were largely tolerated by state and federal officials. These lynchings were terrorism. Quote, Terror lynchings peaked between 1880 and 1940 and claimed the lives of African American men, women, and children who were forced to endure the fear humiliation, and barbarity of this widespread phenomenon unaided. Lynching profoundly impacted race relations in this country and shaped the geographic, political, social, and economic conditions of African Americans in ways that are still evident today. Terror lynchings fueled the mass migration of millions of black people from the South into urban ghettos in the North and West throughout the first half of the 20th century. Lynching created a fearful environment where racial subordination and segregation was maintained with limited resistance for decades. 
Most critically, lynching reinforced a legacy of racial inequality that has never been adequately addressed in America. The administration of criminal justice in particular is tangled with the history of lynching in profound and important ways that continue to contaminate the integrity and fairness of the justice system. This report begins a necessary conversation to confront the injustice, inequality, anguish, and suffering that racial terror and violence created. The history of terror lynching complicates contemporary issues of race, punishment, crime, and justice. Mass incarceration, excessive penal punishment, disproportionate sentencing of racial minorities, and police abuse of people of color reveal problems in American society that were framed in the terror era. The narrative of racial difference that lynching dramatically continues to haunt us. Avoiding honest conversation about this history has undermined our ability to build a nation where where racial justice can be achieved. In America, there is a legacy of racial inequality shaped by the enslavement of millions of black people. The era of slavery was followed by decades of terrorism and racial subordination, most dramatically evidenced by lynching. The civil rights movement of the 50s, the 1950s, and 1960s challenged the legality of many of the most racist practices and structures that sustained racial subordination, but the movement was not followed by a continued commitment to truth and reconciliation. Consequently, this legacy of racial inequality has persisted, leaving us vulnerable to a range of problems that continue to reveal racial disparities and injustice. Equal Justice Initiative believes it is essential that we begin to discuss our history of racial injustice more soberly and to understand the implications of our past in addressing the challenges of the present. Lynching in America is the second in a series of reports that examines the trajectory of American history from slavery to mass incarceration. In 2013, EJI published Slavery in America, which documents the slavery era and its continued legacy, and erected three public markers in Montgomery, Alabama, to change the visual landscape of a city and state that has romanticized the mid-19th century and ignored the devastation and horror created by racialized slavery and the slave trade. Over the past six years, EJI staff have spent thousands of hours researching and documenting terror lynchings in the 12 most active lynching states in America. Those would be Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. The report goes on to say that they supplemented their research and documents of terror lynching in other states, such as Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Maryland, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma, and West Virginia. The reason why lynchings matter about policing today is that they were used as a tool to enforce Jim Crow laws and racial segregation. Quote, it was a tactic for maintaining racial control by victimizing the entire African-American community, not merely punishment of an alleged perpetrator for a crime. Our research confirms that many victims of terror lynchings were murdered without being accused of any crime. They were killed for minor social transgressions or for demanding basic rights and fair treatment. We found that most terror lynchings can best be understood as having the features of one or more of the following. 1. Lynchings that resulted from a wildly distorted fear of interracial sex. 2. Lynchings in response to casual social transgressions. 3. Lynchings based on allegations of serious violent crime. 4. Public spectacle lynchings. 5. Lynchings that escalated into large-scale violence targeting the entire African-American community, 
and six, lynchings of sharecroppers, ministers, and community leaders who resisted mistreatment, which were most common between 1915 and 1940. Here's the part that's the most interesting. The decline of lynching in the studied states relied heavily on the increased use of capital punishment imposed by court order following an often accelerated trial. That the death penalty's roots are sunk deep in the legacy of lynching is evidenced by the fact that public executions to mollify the mob continued after the practice was legally banned. End quote. So he switched from lynchings to legal executions instead. So the history of lynching is horrifically tied up in racial terror and our current criminal justice system. There are literally entire books written about this history in America. So I'm going to go on to what matters right now. Destry McKinney is in prison for self-defense. My season one case, he was attacked by someone who was out on bond for attempting to murder someone else. That history was and should have been important to his defense. When you have a self-defense case, you are legally allowed to introduce prior bad acts of the person that you are defending yourself against in order to tell your story. The prior bad acts of the person who attacked him were not admitted at trial. Not only were they not admitted, they were not admitted at the 11th hour. The judge had indicated that they would be admitted, and the person that was attacked and shot by the other person was literally at the courthouse waiting to testify. And the judge said, nope, we're not going to allow it. He was not allowed to introduce the prior issues of the person who attacked him. Let's talk about Elisha Baxter, my season two case. Elisha was stabbed in the chest by someone with an extensive criminal record. A record for drugs and violence, and none of that was allowed. No prior bad acts were allowed in his case either. So we have two black Americans who were both attacked, who both defended themselves, and instead of saying it's self-defense, like they do so many other white Americans in our country, they both went to trial for murder. But let's talk about Derek Chauvin. Here's a police officer who knelt on someone for nine and a half minutes who died while he was kneeling on him. They're allowing a previous arrest of George Floyd into evidence in his trial. That police officer who was arresting and kneeling on George Floyd would have had no information about a previous arrest of George Floyd. He would not have known anything about him at the time of his actions. Yet a white police officer were going to allow the previous acts of his victim into the trial. But two black Americans who defended themselves against people with prior extensive histories of violence were not going to allow that into their trial. I don't think I have to explain how unjust this system is.
Thank you for listening to Aggravating Circumstances. I hope you're enjoying this ride. Please take a moment and give us a five-star review. It really does help promote our advocacy for our wrongful conviction cases. Everyone wear your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. Check out our other seasons to figure out what I mean by that. And everyone stay safe. We'll see you next time. That only works that with the whites where I'm the first one called. So, you know, that don't work because initially their mindset is it. Obviously, the black person is the one that's causing the problems. So it's basically been honest. It's basically been a target painted on our family's back. Metro Police Department. Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy. This guy looks like he's up to no good, or he's on drugs or something. It's raining, and he's just walking around looking about. He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie, and oh, he's just walking around the area at all the houses. Okay. Now he's just staring at me. Yeah, we got him on the way. Just let me know if this guy does anything else. Okay. Ah, these assholes, they always get away. My first reaction was shock, and then horror, and then I began to cry because I watched this white man murder a defenseless black man. And I don't know if you call it winning. I just, I, I just felt like, I mean, to be honest with you, it was like, I felt like it was just, um, we're getting rid of another nigger. And that's how I felt.